This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Today, we're breaking down a global semiconductor company known as AMD. AMD isn't the biggest and it hasn't always been the best chip maker in the world, but as cyclical and structural changes take place in the semiconductor industry, AMD serves as a great proxy for what's going on and why. To break down the details both behind the company and the industry, I'm joined by Jay Goldberg, a semiconductor industry consultant and partner at Snowcloud Capital. We explore the rise of custom silicon, AMD's competition with Intel and NVIDIA, and whether chip making is a good business at all. Please enjoy this breakdown of AMD. So Jay, I know a lot of the story that we're going to tell today about a single business, AMD, is really also the story of the U.S. semiconductor industry writ large. And we'll kind of blend those two stories together, being sure to touch on what makes AMD specifically interesting and the lessons it can teach us. But I also want to make sure that we set the stage in the right way. You mentioned something very simple before we hit record, which was the story of riches to rags to riches and maybe back to rags in the U.S. semiconductor industry. What do you think the right place to start this story is as we think about educating everyone out there on U.S. semiconductors and the key things that have mattered historically? I think we should probably start in the 1960s with the dawn of the commercial U.S. semiconductor industry. Semiconductors were invented in the 1950s. They came out of Bell Labs. In the very early days, people who made electronics, radios, computers, radars, stuff like that, also made semiconductors. But by the time we got to the 1960s, early 70s, we started to see the rise of merchant semiconductor companies. They didn't make electronics, they just made chips. We could trace all of this back to one guy named Shockley, who had great technical vision of how this stuff was supposed to go, but is like legendary in the Valley for being just the horrible manager and a horrible person. And the people who worked for him all went out and started other chip companies. And that was the genesis of all that comes after. Maybe so don't take it for granted, just describe the unit of a semiconductor in its origin story, like what was the reason that these things got created in the first place to perform what specific job? A semiconductor or a silicon or a chip, I'm going to use those words interchangeably, even though technically there's some differences. But at heart, it's a bunch of little electronic circuits. And if you configure them a certain way, you can make all of those circuits together, they're integrated together, integrated circuits can do math. And they can do math really, really quickly and really, really accurately. So if we think about them as a unit of the unit of computation, maybe say a little bit about that early industry structure. So there was Shockley and then there was Fairchild Semiconductor. There were some early key things that happened. What are the key milestones early on that you think matter before we get to the founding of AMD? I think we start off with actually even earlier in the 50s, Bell Labs invents what becomes integrated circuit. And Bell Labs at that point was part of AT&T, the ultimate monopoly completely vertically integrated. They needed these very dense circuits to power the switches that they built that then went to power the telecom network that they operated. So it was all vertically integrated from the service all the way down to the chips manufacturer. 
in the 60s, we started to see companies that sort of break away. I would say abstract the hardware and the chips. So you know, one company would make the switch and another company would make the chips. And the story starts as you start to see Shockley making electronics, making some of the earliest chips. The team there leaves to go to a company called Fairchild. And Fairchild made electronics, like cameras, I think. And they set up a separate semiconductor division just to do chips. Again, that's pretty much when the modern U.S. semiconductor industry started, was from Fairchild. And there was still, I think, a little bit of a tension within Fairchild itself. Is it like, are we a camera company? Are we a chip company? People didn't really fully grasp how big chips would eventually become. And there was a few people early on inside of Fairchild who I think really, really understood it. One team of those was guys like Gordon Moore and Andy Grove. And they left in 1968, I think. They went out and founded a chip company called Intel. These guys are really, really smart, really visionary, understood that you could make chips cheap enough to power all kinds of devices to the point where the chip is, you could almost think of it as disposable, suitable for consumer electronics. And you think about that in the 60s, consumer electronics was a transistor radio or a radio, not even a transistor radio, a radio and a television. And I think those guys realized that there was going to be a lot more to that. That's why they went out and founded Intel. A year later, another team led by a guy named Jerry Sanders left to go form Advanced Micro Devices, AMD. It's interesting. They were colleagues at one point. I think Intel was more the technical team and Jerry Sanders was more the marketing and business team. And then they almost from inception became very intense rivals. For a long time, that rivalry between AMD and Intel was very central to the story or the myth of Silicon Valley. If you think about what the competitive frontiers or variables were between the two for the first two or three decades of their existence, what were they? What were the things that determined who won and lost in a given market cycle or in a given customer segment or something? Like, What were the things that they were fighting over for the first couple of decades, Intel and AMD? In my mind, when I think of electronics, technology products, electronics in particular, you live and die by the product cycle. If you have the right product at the right time, that is going to determine success. Getting that mix right has always been the challenge for lots of companies. Because if you miss one part or the other, you don't have the right product or you're not at the right time, then you fall by the wayside. And what we saw between AMD and Intel from fairly early on was one company was a little bit better at executing. Intel was a little bit better and then eventually got a lot better at executing. I think that ability to execute on time is what really made the difference. Let's zoom all the way to today. Maybe describe the industry map, if you will, and the things that we'll come back to some of the history too to figure out how we got to here. But just to set the stage on how big this has all become, like the semiconductor shortage over the last couple of years was one of the big geopolitical headlines. It's become something that's an essential thing that fuels a lot of what the world does and how we spend our time. Maybe just talk about that industry map today, what the major functions are and who the major players are in the production of the semiconductors that fuel all this stuff. To get at that question, we need to do some level setting because there's a few basics of the industry that are going to play through the rest of the story. The first is this idea we'll call Moore's Law, named for Gordon Moore, the original CEO of Intel. And the idea here is that every 18 months, the semiconductors that we can manufacture double in performance or more formally, transistor density per chip doubles every 18 months. And 
It's almost a miracle of productivity growth, not just for electronics and semis, but for the whole economy. We're at the point now where the smartphones we have in our pockets have more compute capacity than all the computers on the planet in 1950, something crazy like that. We have supercomputers in our pockets that we can largely take for granted because they're not even the most advanced things out there. They're even more incredible systems in the cloud. That's all because of Moore's Law. For a long time, every 18 months, chips are just getting better and better and better. Unfortunately, that's slowed down. I said 18 months a few minutes ago. Now it's more like three years, four years. That pace of innovation has slowed. And that sort of leads to the second part of this is there's a corollary to Moore's Law that people don't always talk about, which is the cost of manufacturing those chips increases at almost the same rate as the performance gains. It's a little bit slower, but the cost of building a manufacturing plant for semiconductors, we call it a fab, fabrication plant, a fab. Cost of building a fab today is at the advanced manufacturing process is $7 billion for a building and a bunch of equipment. $7 billion is a lot of money. Over time, that led to another branch in the industry. I talked about in the 70s, we saw a split between people who made electronics, people who made chips. In the 90s, then we started to see a split between people who design chips and people who manufacture chips. If you think about a chip company today, the names that sort of come to mind are AMD, NVIDIA, Qualcomm, Broadcom. Those are all what we call fabless chip companies. They don't do the manufacturing themselves. They design the chip. An architect would draw up a blueprint, only a few trillion times more complicated. They take that design and then hand it off to a third party who does the physical manufacture. And we call those third parties who own fabs, we call them foundries. Most chip companies today are fabless and they work with foundries. Now, there are a few that still make chips on their own. Intel, we call them IDMs. But most of the industry today is around this sort of fabless foundry ecosystem. Those are the two pillars of the industry, this idea of Moore's Law and this fabless foundry ecosystem. So with that baseline, the market for fabless semis today is about $400, $500 billion, which is a big market. Then you throw in the foundries and the equipment companies and the software it takes to sort of do the manufacturer, plus other parts of test and packaging at the end of the process. That altogether is eight, $900 billion global market. How does that shake out between what I'll call like sources of power? A big thing that's been in the news, obviously, has been TSMC. It's important. It's the big foundry. It's in Taiwan. There's geopolitical concerns around that. Intel is building a big plan, I think, in Arizona. There's geopolitical underpinnings of the foundry part specifically. It feels like the fabless designers have been pretty Western dominated. But what can you tell us about the state of play there? and the importance, in your view, on the importance of foundries being more localized. Maybe there's going to be a reintegration, so it's not fabulous anymore. It's design and manufacture. What do you think about the state of things? Because it's really been a key news item in the last two years. And rightly so. The cost of building a fab has gone up incredibly high. And the R&D required to not just build the building, but the R&D to like be able to actually use the building and take advantage of it is immense. And as a result, Fewer and fewer number of companies have been able to produce at what we call the leading edge, the most advanced manufacturing process, to the point today where there are really only two companies that can produce chips at the most advanced process nodes, seven nanometer. That's TSMC in Taiwan and Samsung in Korea. And Samsung, at this exact moment, August 26, 2022, Samsung's looking a little shaky. Nobody else can do that. That is an immense choke point strategically for the supply chain. And geopolitically, because again, all of TSMC's plants are in Taiwan, 
And with all the tensions around that, that's a big concern. The big question for the industry is, can Intel catch back up? And we'll talk about this later, but Intel hit a wall a few years ago and stopped being able to stay at the leading edge. And this is a company that had defined the leading edge for 40 years. They named the law after him, named Moore's Law after an Intel guy. They hit a wall 2015, 2016, somewhere around there, but had a really, really hard time advancing. And so this then becomes a big geopolitical question of, can the US ever do leading edge manufacturing in semis again? Unfortunately, it all comes down to Intel. At this point, no one knows whether or not they'll be able to catch it back up again. Why can't we throw unlimited money at this problem and make it so that Intel or some other US-based company for like political interests and like national security reasons can produce at seven and maybe five nanometer and beyond? If it were a money problem, we wouldn't necessarily be in this place right now. Intel had plenty of money and they've been generating huge cash flow for years. I think what happened inside Intel was partly organizational and structural. They made some bad management decisions. They made some bad capital allocation decisions that got them stuck off, that got them off track. Ultimately, yeah, I think if we threw a lot of money at it, we could solve it, given enough money and time and motivation. But it's big sums of money. Just to sort of put it in context, the CHIPS Act, which just passed in the US to subsidize the US semiconductor industry is $52 billion to be allocated over five years, to be spent over five years. $52 billion. TSMC's CapEx in 2022 alone is $44 billion. So yes, we can catch up theoretically, but we're talking really, really big sums of money here. This might be like an overly simplistic question, but are these good businesses? When they are good businesses, what makes them good? And when they're bad, what makes them bad? It just seems like $44 billion of CapEx, you sort of think of the Red Queen effect. You got to go faster and faster just to stay in place. Is that true? Like, how do you think about moats, durable competitive advantage, sources of durable free cash flow, things like that in both the design and the manufacturing of chips? Is chips a good business? Yes, chips are a good business. I think we have to sort of break it up into those two parts of it. If you're going to look at the manufacturing side of it, TSMC is doing incredibly well right now because they have a near monopoly, duopoly at the leading edge. And that gives them an immense advantage. They've just been doing really good work, executing really well, investing tons in R&D and CapEx for a very long time. And as a result, they're getting record profit margins, record gross margins, record cash flow. But it took a long time. There are plenty of years where their CapEx budget exceeded their revenue. And for as long as they can keep it going, it's going to be fantastic. I don't have a PhD in material science. I'm not the right person to ask how long can they keep it going for. But from what I can tell, it seems like they can keep it going for at least another decade, at least to the end of this decade, probably a little bit further out. And then beyond that, who knows what will come next? Probably something, but it's hard to say what. But they're going to have to spend tens of billions of dollars every year to sort of keep that moving. And yeah, in that sense, it is very much a treadmill. Separate from that, the fabulous side of the industry is a fantastic business. It's capital light. You don't have to build machinery. You don't have to build equipment. You don't have to have this big CapEx spend in front of everything. You just need a team of smart people who can sit down and design a chip and lay it out. And then you need to hand it off to the founders. I've worked with startups who have 20 people and in a year or two years can design some really powerful chips. 
and sell them at really good prices. It can be a fantastic business if it's done well. Let's talk about the difference between CPU and GPU and sort of general purpose semiconductors, which have dominated the history. Like a single architecture, the x86 Intel architecture has been dominant through history. NVIDIA is very famous for its dominant position in GPUs. Maybe explain those two big horses, what they do, and why so much of the history and everything we take for granted that's driven by compute rides on the top of like basically two general purpose types of chips so that we can then talk about how AMD has been at the leading edge, I think, of that changing to some degree and how that might change in the future. Let me start off by saying general compute has been the pattern for the last 40 years. We're now at a transition point, and that's going to change. I'll get into that. But in terms of where we are to start with, CPUs, central processing units, are the main key chip inside of a computer. We have them in our laptops. That market for a very long time was dominated by Intel. They had 70, 80% of the market. The rest was AMD. They had about 20% of the market. They grew really, really well until the dawn of the smartphone era when plateaued, seeing GDP growth in PCs. In the early 2000s, we started to see the rise of GPUs, and they kind of do what it says on the label is they process graphics. A CPU can do graphics, but a GPU is dedicated special purpose to just do graphics. And that's made it a lot easier to do video calls and play games on our computers. It's become more important over time, and it's becoming even more important as we go forward. The GPU market is split roughly between AMD and NVIDIA. NVIDIA is 70-ish percent of the market, depending on which category you're looking at. AMD is the other 30%. Right? That's sort of starting point, steady state where we were in the 2000 teens. That's all changing. And I mostly talk about this from the perspective of CPUs that we put in our PCs, our computers. There is another important category of use of CPUs, which is in the data center for servers. And the server is very big, very powerful computer. And you line up racks of those, and that's how you build a data center. You have a million CPUs inside of a data center. And those CPUs are much, much, much more powerful than what you have in your laptop. That's another fantastic market. But that has been dominated by Intel for 40 years, 30 years. If you think of servers in the data center, it's an Intel x86 chip. It's like 100%. It used to be that we would say a data center is basically just a giant room full of CPUs. That has started to change. And a big cause of that change is what we call AI, which I think is a misleading term. Really what it is is linear algebra. And for a variety of reasons, you don't want to use a CPU to do linear algebra. You can, it works perfectly well. Since it's fairly straightforward, fairly streamlined, it's better to do it on a GPU. And as a result, everyone's talking about AI today. Chances are, if you are using some software online and it says, oh, our tax software is powered by AI, what that really means is that software is being run on NVIDIA GPUs in some data center. And so we're starting to see this shift away from 100% CPUs in the data center to a lot more GPU. And then over time, what's going to happen, or what's already starting to happen, is we're not even going to use GPUs to do AI. We're going to use special purpose ASICs that just do AI math. Google is the first one to do this very famously. But they have another chip that just does AI math. It's even better at doing AI math than the GPU. And if you want to play around with AI at home, you're taking some course and you're doing AI, your laptop at home will run that just fine. But if you're 
doing it at Google scale, where every search has to go through multiple iterations of AI algorithms, and it's billions of people using it at once, you want your data center to have the most efficient way of performing that AI math. And that often is going to mean a, a special purpose chip. So this is important because for years, we've just been making do with general purpose compute. And it used to be if you had a computing problem and you'd sit there and go, wow, I have this weird corner case problem and I really wish I could have a special purpose chip to just do this and be more efficient at it. I'm the Acme box company. And I want to make a box processing unit. 10 years ago, I could have sat down and gone, all right, let me design it my own chip. And by the time I could have actually gotten that into production, there'd be a new CPU out. And no matter how good my special purpose chip was, the CPU was twice as good as the last generation. And I just throw more CPU at it. My problem solved. I don't need my own chip. But if it's now taking four or five years to see those performance gains on CPUs, suddenly making my own chip makes a lot more sense. And that is a big change coming to the industry. And we're starting to see these data centers go from 100% CPU to 50%, 60% CPU and 40% everything else. We call it heterogeneous compute, fancy term for mixing and matching different types of custom, semi-custom chips in with CPUs. Maybe to tie this back to AMD now and talk about their history with CPUs and GPUs specifically, how they've evolved. We just zoomed in on AMD, the percent of their revenue that comes from one versus the other. And I also want to make sure we talk about a key strategic decision they made a decade ago or so to become a very asset light, fabulous business and big important milestones in the business's history that drive its current economics. But first, just describe what has its evolution been in the type of product that it creates? Because it seems like, like we said at the beginning, it sort of is like a microcosm of the bigger trend away from CPUs and towards more GPUs. From fairly early on, AMD settled on making CPUs. That became their core product in the 80s. And they were up against Intel in that market. And as I sort of hinted at earlier, AMD was not great at executing. Over time, what would happen is they would miss a product cycle. Their roadmap would slip. And so imagine if you're a AMD customer, you're selling PCs, and AMD says, oh, you know that chip we promised you? It's really going to be three months late. If you're selling it to the consumer market, three-month delay means you're going to miss Christmas. That's a big problem. Over time, that happened again and again. They kept missing their deadlines. They kept missing their ship dates. They just couldn't execute well. And so they would lose share. If I can't get my part from AMD, I'm going to get it from Intel. That meant the next cycle, Intel then had more market share and more profits to invest in R&D and sales and support and all that, which just caused even more problems for AMD. So it was a self-reinforcing cycle for a long time. They just couldn't execute well, and that would lead them to lose share, which would leave them less profits, and so they would just miss again. In And they're going up against Intel, which is really, really formidable, incredible execution machine. In 2006, they were starting to realize they had a problem. They were up against Intel all the time. They wanted to diversify. They acquired a company called ATI, which was making GPUs. At that stage, GPUs were kind of a nice-to-have thing, but it wasn't this big huge, important category that it is today. The AMD board thought, all right, this is a good market. It's close to what we're doing. We have the technical capability to do this. We're going to start making GPUs. So they acquired ATI, which on paper looked like a good decision to diversify. So you're not just competing with Intel. The problem was they were then competing with NVIDIA. And even in the early 2000s, it wasn't quite clear, but now it's very clear. NVIDIA is a formidable competitor. I mean, really, really well-run company executes very, very hard. And so 
AMD was then stuck in second place in both markets. In CPUs, they were probably 20% share, 30% share, somewhere around there. And they ended up with the same position in GPUs as well. That's sort of the history. They made a whole series of changes starting in this, the mid-aughts. We can get into some of those. They made some important changes. And that started to improve things a little bit. And then somewhere around 2015, 2016, Intel hit that wall. Intel started falling off the Moore's Law curve. And their performance improvements started slowing down and slowing down to the point today where they're stuck at, call it 10 nanometer, which is two nodes behind TSMC. So three, four years behind TSMC. All of this reversed. I said before, if you have a compute problem, just wait a year, a new chip will come out and it'll solve that problem. Now, Intel is the one that's stuck. And AMD, who is entirely fabulous at this point, working with TSMC, is able to capture Moore's Law fully. So every performance gain that you can get from Moore's Law now accrues into AMD's chips. And so AMD has been gaining share against Intel in both PC and most crucially in the data center, which is a massive market. And you can see that in their numbers. AMD's revenue is growing pretty nicely and Intel's very stuck. Can you say a little bit about what the magic is when it is an asset light model like AMD's? And like you said, what you really need is a great talented team of people to design cutting edge chips. Why is there a high barrier to entry for that? Is it the distribution side of the business where AMD has long, obviously decades long entrenched relationships with buyers? Why can't the smartest batch of 20-year-olds or something or 25-year-olds come and quickly surpass the design excellence if there's no manufacturing? Like, What is the barrier to entry that makes this possible? CPUs are still very, very complicated chips. There's a lot going on inside a CPU. And it's still fairly hard for proverbial startup to go after that CPU market. It does require a fair size team. It's gotten a little bit easier. In China, especially, we're starting to see a lot of companies come up with GPUs and CPUs. But I think there's a few things going on inside the CPU market that are barriers to entry, at least for the time being. I'm hedging a little bit because things are changing pretty quickly. But what's really protected Intel for a long time, and now to a degree, AMD was, say I'm a software company, and I'm running software, and I'm very good at my software, and I have really good coders who are really good at low level, and they know how the software interacts with the chips. I've spent many years optimizing my software to run on an Intel x86 CPU. Suddenly, I'm not getting the performance improvement from Intel CPU. It's fairly easy for me to switch to AMD. It's hard, though, for anyone else to get into that market because all of this is run on x86 instruction sets. Instruction sets are sort of like the very low-level primitive commands that interface between the software and the chip low-level architecture beneath the chip. So for years, if I'm a software guy, I can switch back and forth between AMD and Intel fairly seamlessly. There are only two companies that make x86 chips today, or effectively two, AMD and Intel. What we're seeing now is a lot of companies using a different instruction set, a different way of designing processors. And these are based on ARM, the UK company, also in the news a lot lately. Anybody can go out and get a license from ARM and design a CPU the problem then becomes, what do you do with all the end users, all those software companies? They spent years optimizing for x86 chips. Suddenly, ARM comes along, and that's fairly different underneath the hood. Now, there are a lot of good software tools. You can cross-compile. You can press a button and cross-compile your software 
from x86 to ARM. But then that's 80% of the work. The last 20% is fairly manual labor, labor intensive, very unglamorous work, just trying to get the software optimized fully to run on ARM. It's not fun and nobody wants to do it. It's just not really that hard. It's just enough friction to keep people from switching. What we're starting to see in the market though is gradually lots of different companies are chipping away at this problem. We're getting now to an inflection point where ARM is starting to look a lot more attractive and a lot more people are willing to use it because they're seeing better performance and lower bills because it uses less power. There's lots of benefits around ARM that are starting to finally kick in. There's a lot of complexity here. If I had to sum it up back to you, maybe that's an interesting way to see if I have it right. It's that the architecture itself is not an isolated thing. It's something that other stakeholders and adjacent processes, companies, products, et cetera, are built on top of and rely on sort of like a protocol. There's a certain standard and therefore there's a deep embeddedness of the architecture itself just in the world around it. And just because you might be able to come up with something de novo that, I don't know, whatever the dimension is, executed faster, ran computations more efficiently or something, you're still dealing with the problem of unless it's I don't know, 10 times better than the incumbent solution or something. There's just so much historical buildup and reliance on this one architecture that no one's going to switch. There's an embedded architecture thing that's driving a lot of this. And that's why it's so hard to disrupt these two companies. We can even simplify it further and just say it's software. Chips do not operate in a vacuum. They are vehicles for executing software. And the software ecosystem is massive and complicated. And that has been optimized for x86 for a generation. And that has been very, very hard to get around that. I know there are companies who are making chips trying to get into the CPU market. Half their engineers are working on the chip, but the other half are going to be software engineers. For a lot of chip companies, it's actually a hard transition to make to have software engineers. It's kind of a different skill set. And it's a big investment. And it's just taken some big companies chipping away at that to really get things to move. Can you say a bit more about this transition point? If we've gone 40 years with two general purpose workhorses that do just about everything, and some of the things that made that possible, like the speed of Moore's Law is slowing down, and we just need ever more specialization, like how far down does that go? And what are the most interesting ones that are happening now? You already mentioned the data center and the transition to GPU and ASICs and ASICs for specific AI workloads or something. How far can you extend this story, do you think, in a way that makes this industry look very different than a couple of major dominant companies and instead becomes a much more fragmented set of designers all designing around specific use cases? I think the best way to view that is to think of this industry as moving with a pendulum. I talked about in the 50s how everybody was vertically integrated. And then we swung all the way to the point where everything is completely abstracted. We're starting to move back, not necessarily for manufacturing. That's still going to be specialized. But we're starting to see a lot more non-chip companies make chips. Some of that's electronics companies. Cisco makes their own chips. Western Digital makes their own chips for electronics. But mostly what I'm talking about is internet companies. The seven biggest data center companies, the Super 7, Google, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent. Those companies are all designing their own chips. And it's very interesting. And so you ask, like, what's one way to look at it? To me, the most interesting chip on the market now is something that Google has created called the VCU, the video coding unit. 
you could almost just call it the YouTube chip because it was designed by the team at YouTube to do video compression and decompression, video encoding. Very, very special purpose chip. You don't see it much in the press because there was no competitor. Usually, you know, Google releases their chip and there's some competitor who's going to publish a white paper and talk to all of the press about how this is not as good as what we make. It was a whole new category of chips that nobody really had thought to create before. But Google had a very, very specific need to build this chip for their own benefit. And so they went out and designed it and got TSMC to manufacture it for them. And it saves them, I mean, they haven't said numbers, but it's got to save them hundreds of millions of dollars a year in OPEX and CAPEX. I mean, it's a pretty interesting story there. And then that percolates through all of these companies. It's important to remember, we were talking about data center electronics, the CPUs, the GPUs that go in data centers. They're very, very powerful niche product. And they're very, very profitable for all the chip companies. And those seven companies, maybe thrown Apple and a couple others, consume probably 70% of the server CPU category. Data center electronics is a sort of discrete market in its own right. It's about $20 billion market. And you have seven, eight companies buying 70% of the output of the most profitable chips that any of these companies make. And now you're starting to see your customer is, has become your competitor. And that's just this one area. And we're starting to see this percolate through lots of other companies. The automotive companies are going to have to do something like this at some point to get to autonomy. We don't know what they're going to do yet, but there's going to be a big change when that happens. My favorite example is John Deere. I think most people where I live in the Valley think of John Deere as very low tech, but in reality, they're a very high tech company. They're actually designing their own chips now to do autonomous tractor driving, essentially. I think we're going to start to see many more companies like that, industrial, automotive, aerospace companies design their own chips. Everything's going to become very much more custom, purpose-specific. How does that engagement work? I mean, that's totally fascinating. It sounds like a potential upending of like the industry map happening in real time. If Google is building a YouTube chip, let's call it, like you said, the VCU, are they employing a team that looks like the team, the R&D team or something at an Intel or, or AMD and then just basically cutting out the middleman and going direct to TSMC? Like, is that an oversimplification of how it's working? And how existential is this to a company like AMD? Let me start the first part. I'll come back to Google in a second. The team that at Apple, say, also is designing their own chips. Apple has Apple Silicon. It's the semiconductor division inside of Apple. You know, they're all people who were poached from Intel and AMD. I think the head of it used to work at AMD. They brought together their design team. It looks a lot like the design team back at the merchant chip companies. And then they designed the chip. They then typically hand off the design to an operations team or a back-end team who interfaces with the foundry to do the production work. So one little wrinkle in this is if I'm a chip company and all I do is chips, I have a fully staffed operations team to do that interface work. Again, it's not glamorous work. It's not fun not particularly value add. So if I'm Google, I probably don't want to have that team. Instead, I'm going to pay someone like an AMD or a Broadcom to do that engineering support work, send the chip to the fab, to the foundry, bring it back, do a lot of the debugging and testing work, and then give it to me. And I mentioned this because what we're seeing now is Broadcom, AMD, Marvell, NVIDIA to a little bit are all stepping in to do that, what we call ASIC work, ASIC support work for the internet companies. I think what the big chip companies have realized is they can't fight this trend. You can't get into a competitive war with one of your biggest customers. So they're trying to embrace it. 
Google go to AMD, for example, and say, hey, help me bring my VCU to market. If I'm AMD or if I'm Broadcom, sure, I'll do that. It's not great business. It's decent margin because I already have the team working. So it's a decent contribution margin, but it's not recurring. It sort of negates my competitive differentiation, but I'll do it for you in the hope that you design a broader system and you're going to use some of my other chips on your board. That's like a sales funnel, grows the sales funnel. I'll help you do your core VCU chip because I know you're going to probably want a GPU attached to that, or you're going to want a CPU attached to that, or some other chip that's going to go on the board next to it. And hopefully I'll be the one you call when you design the whole system. That's sort of how it works. And so it doesn't have to be an existential threat to the big chip companies. It will definitely mean an erosion of TAM. There will probably be a couple of companies that do get hurt worse than others on this. But at the same time, Amazon is not going to go out and design every chip in their data center. There's just a few key pieces that really are strategic to them. They'll design those and they're still going to need lots of other chips to fill out everything. That leaves plenty of room for the merchant chip companies as long as they don't fight it too hard. I think a big mistake for them would be to resist it entirely and dig their feet in and say, no, 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 we're not going to work with that. That would be disastrous. They're just going to try and embrace it and support it. And hopefully that spreads into other parts of their category. Are you aware of any other analog business stories like this outside of the semis industry where this dynamic exists, where the big concentrated customers in something sophisticated all of a sudden become quasi-competitors? It just seems like a really unique story where something so complicated could flip on its head like that in a relatively short period of time. I don't think of anything that's quite moved this quickly. But I think there are decent analogies, private label groceries, right? If I'm a grocery store, I'm going to have private label stuff. The complexity here isn't necessarily the product itself, but it's the marketing around it. And do I want Coke or do I want Safeway Cola? There is a, a marketing decision around that. You know, I don't want to talk down to them. It's not as complicated as designing the chip, but it is fairly complicated marketing task to make that decision. The big difference here, though, is... If you're a company thinking about designing your own chip, if you're just going to do it to save a few dollars on the cost of that chip, it doesn't make sense. I've written about this. I've sort of posted some napkin math on just doing it to save a few dollars and break even at best. Because you have to spend a lot of money. You have to have a team and you have to have the back end support and you have to have all the working capital. You have to pay the foundry. Instead, companies that are designing their own chips, they're doing it because it conveys some strategic advantage. You're capitalizing in other areas. It's not just the savings on the chip. And so Google, again, is a good example of it. Their VCU chip saves them lots of money in terms of how much storage they have to have, how much they have to spend on bandwidth. Google has another chip called the TPU, which does their AI math. And when they introduced that chip, they said, having this chip allows us to reduce the number of data centers we have to build by 50%. At that point, they were building a data center every nine months. It's a billion dollars each you've just reduced your CapEx budget by 50%. That's a huge savings. They weren't trying to negotiate the CPU price down by two bucks with Intel. They were thinking big. Probably the best example is Apple. Apple has their own silicon for both the laptops, the M series, and for their phones, the A series. In both cases, Apple owns the operating system that runs on those chips. So they're able to link the two tightly together and the result is a better performing device. Graphics on an iPhone are just a little bit crisper and a little bit smoother than Android. The M1 Apple laptops have a pretty clear power advantage. 
the battery life is much longer. The fan doesn't go on. They don't even have fans a lot of the time. Those are tangible things that a consumer understands and translates into purchase decisions. So Apple, yeah, spends probably a billion dollars a year in OPEX on their Apple Silicon team. It's a big team, a lot of people, but it more than pays for itself in terms of incremental revenue and customer lock-in. It's a huge advantage. Can we walk through AMD's business itself in napkin math terms? You know, like how much in revenue, what its gross margin profile is. One of the charts I saw prepping for today, which was really interesting, was AMD's versus Intel's gross margin, which for a long time was very favored towards Intel. And it sort of had this steady convergence. And I think has recently flipped where AMD's are actually higher, their gross margins than Intel's now. Just walk us through sort of the economics, the scope and economics of the business. And then we can talk a bit about capital allocation before wrapping up. In 2021, AMD had revenue of $16 billion. And they had gross margins of 48% on that, which is about standard for the industry. For the fabulous side of the company, 48% gross margins is decent. And they had operating margins of 20%. If you go back 20 years, sort of when I first got into this industry, companies didn't have 40% gross margins. They had 30 or 20% gross margins. And they were lucky to be operating profitable. Over the last 20 years, the whole semiconductor industry has consolidated pretty dramatically. Probably 2,000 chip companies in 2000, they're probably 200 today. And so we've seen this immense improvement in gross margins across the industry. And AMD isn't even at the lead of this. Like Broadcom and Qualcomm have even better gross margins in a lot of their products. Some of them have even higher operating margins. So it's been a really, really fundamental shift in the industry. It's been very, very powerful. And so there's a big distinction though here between the fabulous companies and the companies that still make their own chips like Intel. Because AMD doesn't have fabs, they don't have a big capital asset base. By contrast, Intel has been building multi-billion dollar fabs every few years, and they have to take depreciation on that. And it becomes a very significant uh, burden on their margins. And I think one of the big risks to asset-intensive businesses like that is it's good when times are good. You can fully utilize those. But when it turns against you, it turns very hard, very fast. They have a huge fixed cost base at Intel, and that is starting to rear its ugly head because their fabulization is, I don't think they disclose the exact numbers, but it's low. It's not where it needs to be. To really be profitable, you have to run a fab at close to 80% capacity utilization. There are rumors that Intel's in the 50s. So for some of the products, there's a lot of moving parts there, but it's a very big problem for them. And as a result, I mean, you're starting to see Intel move to TSMC as well. If you think about below that line, so it's a capital light business. AMD's is now being fabulous. It stands to reason that a lot of that operating profit is cash that they can allocate as they see fit. They can buy back shares. They can pay dividends. They can do things with debt. They can spend it in other ways, make acquisitions, but they generate some flexibility given the model. What do they do with that? Are they good capital allocators? What has been their capital allocation strategy? What do you think is important there? Yeah. So AMD, like a lot of the fabulous companies have been seeing great margin improvement over the last decade and have been returning a lot of that cash to shareholders through dividends and share buybacks. And that continues. And again, it stands in market contrast to Intel, who is going out there raising money from every source they can get, including every government that will listen to them because they need to fund this huge capex to build all these plants. AMD, their operating income is, it all goes to the bottom line. It's all free cash flow for them and they can allocate it accordingly. 
one of the things that has resulted in is AMD has started to become more acquisitive again. So in 2021, they bought two companies. One is a company called Pensando. It was basically a startup. Pensando makes chips that are used for special purpose electronics applications. So network switches. You have a data center with lots of switches to move data around. You need some fairly advanced chips for that. And again, a few years ago, you would have used CPU, but now it makes sense to build a special purpose chip for your switch or your storage system. And so that's where Pensando does a specialty chip. It's not a huge market. It's not a huge volume, but it's decent business. They paid about $2 billion for that. I think that's probably was very generous exit for Pensando's shareholders, but it helps diversify them. The other company they bought is called Xilinx. And Xilinx is a maker of a whole other category of chips called FPGAs, which are sort of a hybrid between a custom chip and a general purpose compute chip. They're more programmable. You can do a lot of things with them. They're not as performative as an advanced CPU, but they can, they're more flexible. That's the way to think about it. And as a result, we see FPGAs spread all over the place. You see them a lot in industrial systems, aerospace systems, and telecom systems. Again, I think with both Pensando and with Xilinx, we're seeing AMD is preparing itself for this future of heterogeneous compute, where you're starting to need more tailored solutions, a few more arrows in your quiver that will let AMD customize or semi-customize solutions depending on the customer. They also paid $49 billion for it, which is a lot of money for $800 million revenue company. I think the street feels that was a little bit overpaid for, but I can also understand AMD's perspective of it gives them diversity in product portfolio. It exposes them to a much wider range of end markets and again, positions them well for that more diverse future. If you were the capital allocator at AMD or Intel, or I guess really any of these big chip companies, what would you be focused on? In practical terms, what I would look at is diversification. I think that's the easy thing to do. There aren't a lot of targets left to buy, but I'd certainly be looking around industrial and automotive systems. Those are going to be important in the future. Telecom, maybe too. Networking. If I were given a slightly broader remit, I would be looking long and hard at software and how to improve my software barriers. One of the big differences between AMD and NVIDIA in the GPU market is that NVIDIA years ago created a little software layer called CUDA, which gives fairly low-level access for programmers to sort of play around at a low level on the chip. And they did it for a bunch of reasons a long time ago. But in the 2000s, somebody realized that you could use CUDA to do AI, programming AI much, much easier. And so GPUs have become very important for AI. And the default solution for GPUs is NVIDIA because they have this neat little software layer. It's become a very, very powerful tool for them. As a result, NVIDIA is by far the preferred solution for AI GPUs. It's been a really, really big boost to them. And it's been something that AMD's really had to struggle with in this high growth market. And so if I were doing the capital allocation at AMD, I'd be thinking long and hard about how to improve my software chops. If you think about all the time you've spent studying and getting to know this business with your investor hat on, is there one major lesson that this specific business has taught you about investing? I think it's around understanding your ability to execute. The key moment in AMD's history was in 2006 or 2008, when they realized that they were still making their own chips at that point, and they were executing terribly. And they 
really thought long and hard about what was causing their problems. And they realized it was this dependence on their internal fab capacity. They just weren't able to afford to stay in the arms race that is Moore's Law. Back to your Red Queen proposition. They weren't able to keep in that race. And as a result, what would happen is they were underinvesting, And so the fab would be late. The process would be late. So the products would be late. And you'd end up with a bunch of unhappy customers. And in 2008, the company made the decision to spin off the foundries, fabs, into a company that became Global Foundries, which just went public last year. And if you were to write a business school case study on why specialization and focus matter for shareholder value, AMD is, is like the textbook example of doing that. You split the company in two, each side focuses on what it can do without those internal dependencies. As a result, both companies' fortunes have improved dramatically since then. There are lots of reasons for that, and it wasn't an even, steady, always up process. But unarguably, both companies are in a better position because of that split. Are there any major lessons that you've gleaned from AMD, either about investing, operating, or just the world writ large that you think we haven't addressed properly? A lot of this comes down to ability to execute. I know I keep coming back to that theme. AMD was a company that just could not do that. Their problems were so bad back in the 80s and 90s that to this day, people are in the industry, in the back of our minds, we all think, oh, AMD, can they really do that? Can they really deliver? I mean, they've been delivering their roadmap pretty well for 10 years, but all of us in the back of our heads are still a little bit dubious because things were so bad 30 years ago. And having a good understanding of your business and the drivers that allow you to deliver and to hit those product cycles is really, really important. And a lot of that comes down to organizational structure and decision-making inside a company, which are, of course, very hard for external investors to judge and to gauge. But being able to think through how these companies are making their decisions, what are the internal dependencies, what is really tripping them up, why aren't they organizing and managing better, has been really, really crucial to what AMD has been able to achieve in the last 10 years. Jay, this has been so much fun. I think the history here is so interesting and so important. This is like a piece of fuel behind so much of the modern world. But maybe for me, even more interesting is understanding this shift that's happening with the YouTube chip, with specialized chips, with the A and the M series from Apple, with all these big technology players developing their own and sort of the shifts of zones of power. It's just so, so interesting to learn about. So really appreciative of your time and expertise today. I've really enjoyed the discussion. Likewise. Thanks for having me on. To find more episodes of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 